The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. In talking about under the hood, we're talking about different things concerning cars, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, but car companies have cultures that are around them, right? So especially like trucks. If you love trucks, you know that there's a big difference between a Ford truck, a GM truck, and a Dodge truck. Does that make sense to you guys? Can I get an amen for that? Like, is there anybody who's like, yes, trucks are very different. People get very serious about their brand. And there are lots of cultures that are like that. Mini Cooper has their own culture that's kind of quirky. It's kind of fun. But one that I want to talk about is Jeep culture. I don't know if you've known anybody who's owned a Jeep. Any, any Jeep owners here? Any Jeep culture people? You guys are a little bit weird. Um, because Jeep culture, there was a point in time in my life when I believed I was a part of the Jeep culture, because I drove a Jeep, a Jeep Wrangler. It was so much fun, I loved it. And I learned all sorts of things about the Jeep Wrangler community. Like, did you know there's a particular wave that you give to other Jeep owners if you're a Jeep owner? I don't know if you know this, but as you're driving a Jeep, if you ever are like renting a Jeep and you're driving a Jeep and you're seeing all these other Jeeps wave at you in a certain way, they're not mad at you, that's how Jeep owners communicate. So I'm gonna teach it to you, but I'm gonna caution you, don't do this if you're not in a Jeep. All right, don't do this. So if you're driving a Jeep, you've got your hand on the steering wheel, right, and you're driving a Jeep, and you see another Jeep, this is what you do right here. That's it. That's the Jeep wave, just two fingers. Just two fingers. It makes no sense, but that's what Jeep owners do. Now, if you're not in a Jeep, don't do that. They may not realize you're using two fingers. It may go badly. Uh, it communicates the wrong thing. But if you're driving a Jeep, you can do that, the two-finger Jeep. Well, I was in Jeep culture. I loved it. I was having so much fun. At the time, I was living in Kentucky, so there were mountains and trails, and you take your Jeep off-road, and I'm meeting all these guys who love to soup up their Jeeps and take them, so I decided to go wheeling. That's what, when you're in Kentucky, it's wheeling. There's no G, wheeling. It's like going on a hiking trail in a Jeep. And I actually have a picture of it. This was me um, back in the day. This was us wheeling. We're in our Jeeps. We're having fun. It was awesome. Everything got muddy and dirty. And there's like 50 Jeeps going on this trail together. And I was having a blast. And I'm like, I am in this Jeep culture. It's working out. And as we're going along, I'm like, we're going over fallen trees and over big rocks and stuff. And it had this clarifying moment about Jeep culture. We came across something called a rock garden. Now, this sounds really pretty, but it's not. It's basically a section of the trail that is all boulders, like massive boulders. And you're trying to take your Jeep over this trail. And what I realized about Jeep culture is Jeep guys, they love to take their Jeep to the very limit. They want to break something. Like, it's not a good day out if you haven't broken something. And all the other guys are like, yeah, I've got an extra axle. Let's do it. Like, all the guys are fixing it. And that's when I realized I pulled up to this rock garden, and I realized I don't belong in Jeep culture. I don't. I don't, like, I wanted to drive my car to work on Monday. I didn't want to break anything. I was having fun outside. But I don't belong in Jeep culture because Jeep culture is like, this is what we do. We want to take our Jeeps all the way. And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to do that. Um, so I sold my Jeep and bought a minivan. And now that works well. Um, we don't wave at each other. We're disciplining kids. But, you know, there's a minivan culture as well. It's like a living room on wheels. It's very different than a Jeep. Um, but if you're in Jeep culture, the idea of driving something other than a Jeep violates that culture. It doesn't make sense to people. Uh, but maybe you're not a car person, maybe you're a health person, so maybe you can understand, like, in the health world, there are areas or ways or means or ideas that you can get attached to in the health world that you're like, this is my culture, these are my people. Like keto, have you guys ever heard of the keto diet? It's brilliant. We're going to eat healthy with as much bacon as we possibly can. It's awesome. 
Well, keto is amazing. I haven't done keto, but I know a lot of people have done keto. They've had great success in keto. And the whole idea in keto is you stay away from carbs and you just eat as much meat and fat as possible, which sounds incredible. But it's a little bit of a misnomer. You're allowed a little bit of carbs. You're allowed the equivalent of like one saltine a day uh, in carbs and everything else is meat. But imagine for a second, imagine you're in keto culture, right? You're loving it. You're eating a T-bone for lunch and dinner every day. Like things are working out. You go to a conference and in the conference, it's great. In the morning, they've got bacon spread out. You're eating bacon. You're learning things. They're talking about putting your body in ketosis and how it burns this and that. And like, you're going to be healthier and your cholesterol's not going to go up. And then all of a sudden, the breakout happens, and you're all going to lunch at the convention center, and for lunch, they have this gorgeous spread of fettuccine alfredo and garlic rolls, right? It wouldn't make sense. The, the thing that's in front of you would violate the, the culture that you're in of keto. Like, you're not going to eat a bunch of carbs, like carb pasta and carb bread, if you're in keto culture. There are these times that there are activities that violate the culture that you're attached to. Well, here's the thing. Every aware around the world, there are Christians that gather, and they gather in churches or in cathedrals. Maybe they gather under a tree or underground in a place where they have to be in secret, but Christians gather together as the church, and as we gather, it's almost like a conference. We're getting together to learn, to grow, to be conformed more with what, what God would have us do, and here's the unique thing about the church. The church is called to be in the world, but not of the world. And what that means, what it basically means is you're called to be in the world. You're called to be in the PTA or on the HOA board or in the workplace that you're in. You're called to be in the world. You're not called to be called out of it, but you're called to be in the world. But you're not to be of the world. That the culture of the world doesn't dictate what is right and wrong for your life. As a Christian in 21st century North America, our, you know, like if we're a Christian, our allegiance is more close to the kingdom of heaven than it is to what North American people do. So our allegiance is to what God, if God was our king, what we would do in that kingdom. That's what should drive our values and our cultures. And what we're gonna look at is um, the, in the first century there, James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to this group and he's saying there is a behavior, there's a behavior that's going on that is absolutely diametrically opposed to your loyalty in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not even on the radar of the community you live in. But this behavior that's going on is so opposed to everybody, to your culture, to the kingdom of heaven, that it's gonna destroy you. And he gives a really strong warning about it. And that's what I wanna look at with you together. Let's look in James chapter two. Uh, I'll go ahead and start reading for us here. We'll just pick it up right in verse one. James chapter two, verse one, he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Let me just pause there for a second. He's creating this scenario the whole thing hinges on this idea of partiality. This idea of partiality. It may not mean as much as a basic, like it's a, it's a complex word. The basic construct is it means receive the face, right? That makes it clearer, right? Receive the face. 
Well, what he's saying is you're making judgments based on external appearances. So James is saying, hey, hey readers, hey church, you're making judgments based on external appearances, and that's causing a problem. Then he paints this scenario. He talks about a rich man and a poor man coming in. And the rich man, he's, clo- he's clothed nicely, and you're giving him preferential treatment. You're saying, hey, come sit here in a good place. And the poor man, well, he's in shabby clothes. And you're either dismissing him, saying, sit over there, or you're treating him like a servant, saying, come sit at my feet. And he's saying, you're showing this partiality here in the church. And here's the, here's the big point of what James is dri- driving at, that partiality violates the values of the kingdom of God. Partiality violates the values of the kingdom of God. Let me paint it for you like this. Let's make it modern. So it's 21st century North America. There's a church happening, and two, two men walk in. The first one walks in, and maybe he's got a clean haircut. He's got nice, clean clothes on. Maybe you even saw the car he pulled up on. It's real, you know, it's washed. It looks real nice. Maybe he's got a nice watch and really good sneakers on. And he walks in, and he's warmly welcomed. Hey, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. Maybe you bring him over and show him, hey, let's get a cup of coffee. You know, enjoy some good coffee. You know, it's fresh this morning. And maybe he even gets a tour of the facility. Hey, let me show you what else we got going on. Let me show you this space over here. And let me show you what we got going on for kids. And that guy's given the preferential treatment. And then you bring him into the auditorium and you're like, hey, come sit up here. This is a great seat right here up front. I want you to be able to sit here so you can hear everything and pay attention. But the guy that walked in right behind him is in shabby clothes. Maybe he looks like he hasn't had a haircut for two years, hasn't shaved in a really long time. He's got holes in his shirt, and not like the designer holes, not like, you know, a regular T-shirt and then a real expensive shirt has a cool holes. Not those, like, holes like the shirt's worn and dirty. It's ripped in weird places. And he comes in, and he's not greeted. There's no, hi, how are you? Come get a cup of coffee. There's definitely no tour offered. And instead, when he goes into the auditorium to sit down, he's encouraged to kind of sit in the corner in the back where he's not going to be a distraction to anybody. That's the picture that James is drawing up here to this church. He's saying, hey, this is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. And this is horrible and wrong. And there are three ways that he's going to tell you it's horrible and wrong. And at first you hear that and you're like, all right, that seems a little strong to say this is like horrible. Like, you know, we can understand a little bit. But let me show you what James says. He has three different ways that he shows you that partiality is wrong. First is that partiality is prideful. Partiality is prideful. Let me show you here from verse 4. It says this in verse 4. Have you not then, so you've, you've decided between the rich man and the poor man, you sit here and you sit back there. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Like evil thoughts. He kind of ups the ante a little bit there. He's saying it's prideful. Part of pride is assuming responsibility or assuming authority that you don't have. Imagine in your workplace, you show up tomorrow morning, and in your workplace, you're there, everybody's working, minding their own business, and some random guy comes in off the street, and he starts walking around, and just using his gut feeling, starts firing people. He's like, hey, look, you haven't been, you haven't been cutting it, I need you to pack up your stuff and head out. And he walks over in your marketing department, he's like, hey, listen, um, we've got a difference in direction, we're gonna let you go. Um, but you've got till the end of the day to clean out your desk. 
maybe walks over to somebody else and is like, hey, good news, we need to promote you. You're now gonna be running our HR department and uh, you get the office on the corner. And you'd be like, what is this guy doing? He's got no authority to do that. He's just some random guy coming in, making decisions. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He's got no authority, but he's deciding that he's gonna judge who in the company gets to stay and go. And maybe you're kind of hoping that happens tomorrow because there's some people you'd love to see go. But that would still be a violation of his authority because that guy doesn't have any authority in your workplace to make those decisions. But he'd be coming in and making those decisions. And, and James is saying it's like that. You're, you're making distinctions among people and you don't know. And you're judging people and the way you're doing it is actually evil. He's upping the ante. He's like, this is not good. It's not just okay. It's not how the culture works. This is evil. You can't do that. It's prideful. So that's point number one from James, that partiality is prideful. Point number two is that partiality is foolish. It's just foolish. We're going to come back to verse five, but let me jump down to verses six and seven here. It says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? What he's saying is like, it doesn't even make sense. It's foolish. You have to understand the Roman culture at the time, the rich were an elite minority and the larger mass of the population was made up of poorer classes. It's very similar in society today that the rich are the minority and that the poorer classes make up the majority of people. And what was going on in this time is that the rich were abusing their power because they had means to abuse it. And James is saying, this doesn't even make sense. The people who are abusing our community are the ones you're trying to cuddle up to. It doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm sure you can imagine like if somebody is wealthy and they're abusing their power, they have more means to maybe buy a better attorney or hire a better attorney to get around to justice and to present well. Or maybe they are the ones who are going after the authorities of oppressing somebody and that poor somebody is not able to stand up and talk back for themselves because they don't have the means in society to be able to do so. And James is saying, guys, this is foolish. Why are you finding the rich people to go and cuddle up with and try and do something? Aren't those the ones in society that are oppressing you? Now, what James is not saying is that all rich people are bad. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying wealth is bad, but what he's pointing out to is the majority in the culture at that time is the majority of oppression came from the rich and trying to placate to them, trying to give them preference is foolish. It doesn't make any sense. So he's saying not only is it prideful, but it's also foolish. And then his third point is partiality is also disobedient. It's disobedient. Let me show you, let's jump back up to verse five. Let me show you how he says it's disobedient. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And then let's jump down to verses eight. Let's keep reading from eight. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Here's what he's saying. Right there in verse 5, he says, Are not the poor the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom? He's calling back to, he's almost directly quoting Jesus' teaching. See, James is the brother of Jesus, and in this passage, he's playing out what it means to live under the kingdom of God, to live in that mentality. In particular, what that looks like with partiality, he's quoting from the opening line of Jesus' most iconic teaching. So these Christians who are reading it, to us, if you're familiar with Jesus, you've probably heard about this teaching Jesus did called the Sermon on the Mount. It's captured in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's this big teaching that Jesus has that he, it's kind of his magnum opus. He just kind of has all of these great ideas. But the opening line is what James is referring to. It's in Matthew 5, 3. Let me read it for you right here. Matthew 5, 3. It says this. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what happened. This is the story of how the gospel played out, right? Jesus comes into town. He starts preaching this, this idea that God wants to forgive people for their sins and that he is the forgiveness that they can access. And what happened in that first society is the poor who weren't distracted by all the comforts of life or weren't confused about self-reliance they, spiritually poor, realized how much they needed Jesus. So when Jesus is teaching, the poor are coming in droves following him. And Jesus is stating right at the beginning of the Sermon on is it not the poor? Like the poor in spirit, they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And James is saying, you've made a distinction between the poor and the rich. But have you forgotten like Jesus' opening line? He says the poor will inherit the kingdom. He's like, why are you making distinctions when Jesus has already said that, you're disobedient to your teacher. But even more than that, he goes on in verses 8 through 12, and he talks about this other idea, this royal law. And the word he's using for royal law is like, it's kind of like the law of the kingdom. So if you're in the kingdom of God, the people who live and act their allegiance is to God. They live and act as if God is their king, and God sets the tone for the way that they live. He's saying that royal law, what Jesus said is the royal law, you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's like you're missing the point there too. Let me show you here in Matthew 22. Uh, Jesus is there and there's this, this person comes up to him. This lawyer comes up to him. It's Matthew 22. We're going to read 35 through 40. And this happens. Jesus says, or the, Matthew says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, asked Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, or Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what James is saying is if you fulfill this law, that's great. This is how Jesus summarized the entire law. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And by making distinctions, by showing partiality, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, kind of put yourself in their shoes. If life's circumstances had played it out, where you were the one who was in shabby clothes, you were the one who felt like life had fallen apart, and you were out on your luck. 
and you're searching for help. You're looking for acceptance, but everywhere you turn, society or culture dismisses you. They push you aside. They treat you like a servant. They don't honor you. If that was you, and you were coming to a church to connect with God, to be with God's people, to see if you can get some help, how would you want to be loved? How would you want to be received? That's what, that's what James is drawing out here with love your neighbor as yourself. If that was you, how would you want to be received? Would you want to be pushed aside and be like disregarded? Or would you want to be treated like a servant? Like you get to come and serve, you don't get a good seat? Or would you want to be welcomed? And would you want to be loved instead? This is the picture that James paints here. And for a second, we should say, okay, well, that... Like, I, I get it when you say it like that, but it still seems kind of harsh. But also at the same time, we should be thankful. We should be thankful that the Bible is so serious about this. That James is saying, hey, this is not something you can just do because this is how culture works. Yes, that's how culture works, but you're not called to be a part of that culture. That culture is not your authority. Your authority is God. And what God has said is love your neighbor as yourself. And in that situation, you should be more loving and open to them. And we should be thankful because for us, we would want to be received that way. If life circumstances had made it where we're the one who's in Shevikos, we would want to be received in a way that would be honoring. But also, James kind of turns up the heat because it, it does something to us. It makes it where we can't excuse it. We can't say, yeah, but you know, God knows. Like, this is what we do in culture. No, you can't excuse it. Jesus says, no, this is, or James says, this is really important. Like, this is top two for Jesus. Like, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're forgetting that, like, you're forgetting what Jesus said is the most important. Like, this is really important. You're going to shipwreck yourself if you don't follow it. And the other thing is it keeps us from comparison. Right, well, I know I do it some, but I'm not as bad as that other person. Like, you can't compare as well. You've got to realize, like, this is really important. God desires this for you. You can't be showing partiality like this. So he kind of turns up the temperature and lets us know, like, this, this is really bad. You can't do this. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Church, what do we do if we're not supposed to show partiality? How are we supposed to act? Well, I think what he points to is mercy. Mercy. Look at the end. Look at verse 14 here, or verse 13. It says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is one of the primary markers of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you this. I had a friend who recently sold something on OfferUp. All right, and everything was going well. He went and sold the thing, and in the interaction, the guy's paying him cash for the purchase, and uh, in the cash, he gives him a $100 bill. Now, the $100 bill, he's like, I promise it's legit, but it was really, really old. Like, it had the small picture of the president on it, you know? Like, it wasn't the big color for one. It was a small one that's just green and white. So he gives him this really old $100 bill. He says, no, I promise it's real. It's legitimate. You can, you can trust me. And it's okay, all right. And then my buddy takes it to the bank, and he goes to the ATM and tries to put it in the ATM to deposit all the cash, and it rejects that one $100 bill. It won't take it. 
So then he's a little bit nervous and he goes inside the bank and he goes up to a teller and starts to give it to the teller and they're looking at it, they're trying to check it out and like they're looking real close, looking for a watermark and different stuff. The teller's having a problem. So then he goes and gets the bank manager and the bank manager comes over and they're looking at it together and they're doing all this stuff and they come to them and basically say, look, here's the deal. There are certain markers that authenticate our currency. And when we can't find the markers, we can't declare that the currency is a fake, but we can't authenticate it as real. So we can't take this $100 bill. And that's what James is saying. There are certain markers, if you live in the kingdom of God, that show authenticity. And when the markers aren't there, it makes you question the authenticity of what's there. And one of those markers for a Christian is mercy. Let me paint it out like this. If you've had an encounter with Jesus, if you've interacted with Jesus, as you've approached Jesus, you realized you were spiritually bankrupt. You realized spiritually you had nothing to offer. But as you started to interact with Jesus, as his eyes lifted and met yours, he didn't look at you with disdain. He didn't disregard you because you couldn't offer him anything. Instead, when Jesus saw you, he had compassion on you. And if you've had that interaction with Jesus, you know that he didn't just leave you in that shabby condition. He also took off his robe and gave it to you. He gave you standing in his kingdom. He gave you his royal clothes. And now, dealing with King Jesus, he's looking at you in your humble estate and saying, I'm not gonna disregard you, I'm gonna honor you, and I'm gonna love you. And that's mercy. Mercy is unearned, undeserved compassion and love. And that's what Jesus gives us. And don't get, the, don't get the order backward. It's not that you have to give mercy in order to receive God's mercy. No, before you deserve it, that's the whole point of mercy. You can't earn it. It's undeserved. Before you deserve it, Jesus gives you mercy. And if that's how he deals with us, how could we then turn around and not deal with other people that way? That's what Jesus gives us. He gives us this economy of mercy. It's not judgment, but it's mercy that we turn around and deal with other people. So what do we do with this? What do we do with a passage like this? It'd be really easy to say, well, man, I'm glad I wasn't in that community because it sounds like they had things backward. But the scripture's not written for us to see what other communities were like and be glad that we're not there. That's comparison. What it's written to do is for us to look internally and for us to start asking the question, okay, God, what does that mean for my life? How should I respond? And maybe you should ask some good questions, like maybe you should think, okay, in my neighborhood, have I shown partiality? Have I shown favoritism? Do I gravitate toward people that are like me? Do I maybe skip over a couple houses because when I see them come out to get the mail or drive and drive away, they don't look like me, so I'm just not even gonna go to them. Instead. I'm gonna take my time and go down to the other person because when I see somebody who's like me, I'll go down and I'll connect with them. And it makes you ask the question, why did I do that? Did I do that because I judged that other person? Or did I do that because as I've tried to connect them, we just genuinely haven't been able to connect? Or maybe at work, maybe it's not you're avoiding somebody because they don't look like you, but maybe you're avoiding somebody because they can't give you what you desire. Maybe you've decided rather than loving your neighbor as yourself, you end up using your neighbor for yourself. 
So maybe it's at work, it's that coworker that you decide you just have nothing to do with because they can't help you. And you kind of disregard them or you don't talk to them or you gloss over them. You pass them in the hall and never say hi. Or maybe it's that person in life that you see that you're just like, this person can't give me what I want, so I don't really care about them. I'm just gonna go on my way. But that's not the economy that God calls you to. He doesn't call you to walk through with blind eyes and just ignore other people. So maybe in life you can ask yourself, why do I do that? What's behind that? God, is this an area where I need to grow? Is this an area where I've allowed some other reason to be the reason why I don't do it? And then together corporately as a church, our heart for City Rev is that we will look and sound like our community around us. That means the people that come here and worship together are worshiping Jesus, but they are from diverse generations. They're from a diverse ethnicities. They're from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds. They have different time perceptions. They have different times that they're awake. It could be that City Rev, our hope, our desire is that we're made up of such a different group that we put our preferences aside. And if we're honest, that's really hard. That's really hard. If our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, then all of our other preferences about our culture, be it economic or, um, or any other distinction, all of those other preferences, we can acknowledge that these are our preferences and we like them and they may be important to us, but they're secondary to being able to worship God together. So what that could look like at a church is that could mean maybe the music is in your style. And I'm grateful that right now I'm not aware of anybody arguing about the music or hating on a music style, but I need you to understand if we're going to be a diverse group, you may stand there and feel like, I can't really hear the drums. I wish there was more drums. And the person behind you is thinking, all I can hear is drums. This is horrible. Like, Sometimes our preference for music doesn't match up because if you look at the music we listen to as we leave here, like maybe there aren't any songs that are in a shared library between the two. Maybe even our wardrobes, like because of the places we're from, we don't have any, any clothes in our closet that would match the clothes in somebody else's closet. And that doesn't mean ours are better and we should be upset with them if they wear that. We should acknowledge and, and agree that like, we're gonna have a lot of diversity there. And the beauty of what we're going to experience together as a church is as we come together, our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and we're not going to judge each other, we're not gonna show favoritism or partiality. Instead, we're gonna encourage each other toward Jesus, and we're gonna honor him, remembering that we have received mercy first, and that the Lord would just bless us to be a place that's overwhelmed with mercy. And here's the other thing as a church. It's easy for the person in the name tag at the door to be the kind one, but if that's our church culture, to be a welcoming, loving place, it's not just the person at the door in a name tag. It's not just the person checking in your kids or the personality on stage who says, hey, we're so glad you're here. But if you call City Rev your church home, you communicate the culture of the church. So when you're sitting there and there's somebody you don't know, think about how you would want to be interacted with if you were loved. Because there are people that come every week that in their head, they may not look shabby, but they're feeling very shabby on the inside. They feel spiritually bankrupt. And as they're coming, they're wondering, does God care about me? Does God see me? Am I gonna be accepted here? And even though nothing, you'd say, well, hey, nothing I did turned them away, right, but nothing you did showed mercy either. So as you're here at City Rev, maybe that looks like, if you're here at the West Pines campus, 
you connect with somebody afterwards, you're like, hey man, I haven't met you before. My name is Dan, what's yours? And you talk a little bit, oh, how long have you been coming to City Rev? And then you say, hey, right afterwards, let's walk over across the street. Let's go over to the Fuge, get some coffee, some pastelitos. Or maybe you're over at the Cooper City campus and you see somebody you don't know and you're like, hey, what's going on? I'm, I'm Dan, how are you doing? It's nice to meet you. And as you're talking, you say, hey, let's go across the street over to, over to the coffee shop and I'll buy you some coffee and let's hang out over there and talk. There's that, that intentionality, that meaningful connection that you can create by being a welcoming, loving place. And you don't need a particular role or name tag to do it. It's just a part of who we are as Christians. It's a part of who we desire to be, that people who love and honor God, who pursue him in the way that we show mercy to other people, undeserved, unearned love and compassion to other people. I pray that would be true of our church. I pray that would be true of our community. Well, let's take a moment and pray right now. With every head bowed, and every eye closed. Maybe today, as you're hearing this, somebody has come to mind. God has brought somebody to mind. Whether it's a neighbor or a coworker or somebody else in your life. And he's brought them to mind. There's that little tug inside that you're saying, God, I don't know that I'm showing partiality there, but I don't know that I've been loving and merciful toward them. And for that person, I would say, I think God's putting them on your heart because you're supposed to do something about it. So I would start by just confessing that to the Lord and saying, God, I'm sorry I haven't shown mercy to that person. Lord, I've been judgmental or I've avoided them because they're not like me or because they can't get me anything. But God, please forgive me for that. And Lord, would you fill my heart with love for them? God, would you give me the boldness to create the opportunity, or Lord, would you arrange the circumstances so I have the opportunity to show them love and compassion, even though I don't know that they deserve it. But Lord, because you have loved me, I wanna show them mercy. And right now in an honest moment before the Lord, you can pray that. And for some of you who are here, maybe you've never received mercy from God. Maybe you still feel like you're sitting there and you're wondering if he sees you and you're wondering if you're deserving of his love. And I can tell you, you are deserving of his love. He loves you. And he offers you mercy. He offers you forgiveness. And you can have that today by beginning a relationship with him. So if that's you, if you want to experience God's mercy for the first time, I'd ask you to just pray this quietly in your heart between you and God. Just pray, God, I need your mercy. God, I feel like I'm bankrupt inside, and God, I want your mercy. I want your love and your compassion, and I want your forgiveness. So God, would you forgive me? Would you love me? Would you accept me? Would you show your mercy toward me? And scripture is clear that if you believe in your heart that Jesus was the Christ, and you confess with your mouth that he's raised from the dead, that you will be saved. So today, as you pray that God saves you, that's an amazing thing. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much, Lord, that you set the tone for us to live in your kingdom by showing us mercy first and lavishing mercy on us so that we can then respond in showing mercy to others around us. God, I thank you for those today that have put their faith in you for the first time, that are experiencing your mercy fresh and new for the very first time. God, I thank you that you together 
as a church, Lord, you call us together to come together to show mercy to our community, to be people who are in the world, but not of the world, Lord, that we are people who are marked by mercy, that that is the mark of authenticity of our life, that you love us, and that because of that, we respond in love toward others. God, would you fill us with love for our community? Would you fill us with love for the people you have interacted with us? Lord, we love you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you today put your faith in Jesus for the first time, we want to celebrate that with you. So here's what I'd ask you to do. Either when you came in or in seat in front of you, there's one of these Get Connected cards. Go ahead and grab that. And on the front, you can mark off that you put your faith in Jesus for the first time today. Or if you're joining us online, you can go to cityrev.org slash faith, and you can fill out a form there. We'd love to be able to connect with you. And then if you put your faith in Jesus, grab that card and go out to guest services in the lobby and bring that card with you. And we've got a Bible for you, just a way of celebrating with you this new exciting thing. And we want to encourage you in that. Or if you're online, cityrev.org slash faith, we want to send you a Bible. We can't wait to celebrate that with you. But church, let's end our service together by worshiping. So go ahead and stand with us as we worship. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.